Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning to the podcast is Judge Alice Hill of the Council on Foreign Relations. It's been over two years since Judge Hill was on the pod, and I'm very excited to have her back on. She'll be talking about her new book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, which she co-wrote with Leonardo Martinez Diaz. Judge Hill was a senior director of resilience at the National Security Council in the Obama administration before moving on to the private sector to continue her work in adaptation. She's one of the profession's leading lights and at the center of many of the domestic and international adaptation conversations. We talk about her book and the wide-ranging recommendations she comes up with on how to tackle the issue of adaptation. It was a great read and I highly recommend you get it. Links to the book are in my show notes. Okay, upcoming episodes. Up next is my end of the year episode. I was fortunate to host three guests for the end of the year panel. Emily Wosley of WSP, Anita Van Breda of World Wildlife Fund, and Dr. Meredith Wiggins from Historic England. It was a fun conversation, but very informative. We talk about the year's top climate stories, favorite episodes of America Daps of the past year, and where the pod should go in 2020. You're gonna love hearing from these folks. Also, I'm doing an episode on extreme heat with Dr. Lad Keith at the University of Arizona, which will be out in the new year. So before we jump into this conversation with Judge Hill, I want to share a big announcement. I've been alluding to this a bit in the past few months, but it's finally going live. I'm going to be hosting live talk shows on Simpatico TV. Simpatico Studios is a new software television company that produces live stream talk shows about important business and social problems, policies, and innovations. I will be anchoring, appropriately, the Climate Adaptation Channel, where I'll interview academics, policymakers, journalists, researchers, and climate adaptation professionals just like yourself. Simpatico is an invite-only professional network, and I'd like to personally extend an invite to all adapters interested in joining a community of peers. Our television shows will be live streams, meaning you can interact directly with me, my guests, and other community members in chat during our interviews. I'd also like to invite adapters to join me as a guest on my upcoming pilot episodes. If you have a specific problem, policy, best practice, product, or program that you'd like to highlight to your peers, we are ready for your debut on Simpatico. Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. Hopefully a great resource for you. And if you or your organization would like me to initiative coverage of an important topic, just let me know. We will find relevant guests and provide extensive coverage. In the show notes, you'll find a link to a request and invite to Simpatico. Yes, I know that seems like something very new and different. Check out the link to learn more about it. It's something I'm doing parallel with the podcast, but it'll be an opportunity to have a lot more conversations than I do here on the pod. And again, we're in the process of recording pilot episodes. Maybe you and I can have that next conversation. So check out the link in my show notes to learn more. Hope to hear from you. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Judge Alice Hill. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Judge Alice Hill. Judge Hill is the Senior Fellow for Climate Change Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hi, Alice. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. I'm thrilled to be back with you. Okay, it's been way too long since you've been on. It's I think it's it has been almost three years. And so you've recently made a move. Part of what we're going to be talking about today is this book that you've come out with. And I want to get to that in a little bit. But you've moved from the Hoover Institution to the Council on Foreign Relations. So what's that all about? 
Yes, I had a wonderful run at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, but then this opportunity arose at the Council on Foreign Relations, and since my work had expanded beyond just the domestic side of adaptation, but also to include international considerations of climate change, it was a perfect place for me to move to. Council on Foreign Relations is a world-famous think tank, but actually a lot of people might not know what it is and what they do. Can you give a little bit of background? It is a think tank. It also is a membership organization. It's almost 100 years old. We'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary very soon. And it allows for experts in foreign policy, be they from the business realm or ambassadors or former government officials, to meet and talk about issues that relate to foreign policy, global politics, It also has a think tank element. I'm part of that think tank, the David Rockefeller Studies Program. We have a number of scholars who focus on various issues, and my issue is climate change policy. That's in Washington, D.C., right? Well, the council has two locations. One's in New York City and one's in Washington, D.C. All right. So you never did get to make that move back to California. I think I asked that in the last podcast. You're never going back. You're stuck in D.C. (laughs) I don't think I'm going back anytime soon. I'm now a D.C. resident. This is true. (laughs) I made my way out, but I'm glad you're there. Uh, The reason and this is what's great for me is that I have books sent to me all the time, climate change books, and it's rare that I actually read the book and have the author on just because sometimes it's not a good fit. But when I was sent your book, I just thought this was exciting and it's a perfect opportunity for you to come back on. And it's the book is titled Building a Resilient Tomorrow. And you co-wrote this with Leonardo Martinez Diaz. And I guess a couple things here is so why a book? And then also just can you give, I guess, a little bit of background on your co-author? Sure. Well, let me answer the first. Why a book? It was clear to Leo and myself that this area of resilience adaptation was an emerging issue that would grow in importance because, as you know, we've already baked in certain impacts from climate change. And even if we got our emissions to zero tomorrow, we would still be having to address the accelerating impacts, more flooding, extreme heat, extended drought, bigger storms. So Leo and I thought it was important that we pull together not a book by apparel, you'll see books by flood or extreme heat, but a book that looked across the various sectors that will be called upon to assist in building adaptation to these climate impacts. Leo and I worked together in the Obama administration. Uh, Leo was at the Department of Treasury and I was in the White House as Senior Director for Resilience Policy. One of the efforts that a group we were working on, the Task Force on Climate Preparedness, identified the need for screening of all our overseas development assistance work. So that's money that the World Bank gives, that the Millennial Challenge Corporation or USAID gives to nations to help them in their development efforts, that those projects that we are funding should be screened for climate resilience. So Leo and I worked on the development of an executive order that the president eventually signed. That executive order is still in place. And as a result, the 
investments made by the federal government overseas in this type of development work are screened for climate resilience. Leo is an economist, so he brought a very important perspective to our analysis of how we can be more effective in our adaptation efforts. As I was reading the book, there's a lot of timely things in there, and it occurred to me it must be difficult to write such a book. I mean, how long have you been working on it? Because so many things seem to be happening in real time that are, I guess, useful anecdotes for your book. Well, it's true. The field is changing very rapidly, and that was one of our concerns. But actually, with adaptation, these are longer-lived investments. So I think all that we have in the book is still accurate. But we worked on the book for about three years total. I'd say the writing part of it, once we had the contract for the book, it took us about, I'd say, eight months to really get it into polished form. I would say it's probably more focused on the domestic side, right? That was on purpose? Yes, we drew on our experience on working on these issues domestically, although we had initially met uh, in the international realm because we were the most familiar uh, at that time with what was happening here in the United States. And we thought that the audience that we wanted to reach were those living and working in the United States who could use this information and apply it to the decision-making they need to make as to where they live, how they live, and how their businesses are conducted. Obviously, the book is broken up by chapters, but was there any sort of rhyme or reason to the structure of the chapters or the type of areas that you focused on? Was this some, you look at your previous work where you look, okay, here are the 10 points, you know, public health. What is there any structure that it's based on? We wanted to approach this across different sectors. And I'd say that was the hardest part for us was figuring out what the chapters would be. But once we started working on it, it was clear that the built environment would be very important. That is how we build buildings and where we build them. And then the law. Similarly, we'll have a role here. It's typically a little slower to be involved in the decision-making process, but it can act as an enormous lever to drive further adaptive behavior. We wanted to look at how the markets are performing, how we could better finance these very expensive adaptation projects. We knew that the human brain sometimes has difficulty properly assessing risk, particularly when it comes to a threat like climate change. So how can we work around our cognitive biases uh, with regard to that? We also took a look at data because data is more available than it's ever been, but how do we harness it and make it effective for decision makers on the ground? That still remains a major challenge. And then we looked at a number of issues which we called the upenders, the things that really could throw off an enormous amount of progress in global stability as well as uh, economic growth, and those are migration, Climate change will cause expected to be unprecedented levels of people to be on the move. We also looked at the national security risks, the health risks, as well as the growing inequality that will come with climate change. I want to dig into a few of those sections, but I, what I thought was very useful about the book is at the end of each chapter, two or three recommendations, sometimes three or four recommendations. That was a, probably just a very specific decision to include those. That's useful. Sometimes you get to the end of a chapter and you're like, okay, now what? And then you had these recommendations. How did you come up with those recommendations? Is it sort of on pre-existing literature? Did you and your co-author have sort of a discussion? These really are the main points and this is how you do it. How, how did you decide to include those? It was all of the above. 
once we decided that it was important to provide some kind of synthesis for the reader, because it's difficult to retain if you've read a chapter, what are key ideas for how to move forward. So once we decided to do that, then we pulled out from the chapters what we knew we had already identified. And then if there was something missing uh, in a chapter that we thought, oh, gosh, we should have included that, that was a good signal to us to go back and make sure that the chapter addressed that. So it was kind of a an iterative process, but we thought it was important to signal that there are things that could be done now to have much better outcomes in the future. Well, here's a recommendation on my end. I don't know if you've already done this, but sort of a summary of all those bullet points. Not everyone's going to necessarily read a whole book, and I don't know if it's a paper or blog post or whatever, but they really are a great consolidated sort of list. And so I don't know if you're planning anything like that, but I think that'd be really useful for a lot of folks. Well, thank you. Yes, we have pulled it together for our own purposes, but that's a good idea to share it more widely. Thank you. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and buy the book, though. I'm not discouraging people from from doing that. Get your autograph copy. Again, I want to dig into the book a little bit here. And what I thought was really interesting is the the chapter on finance. And I want you to describe, but there are these big four areas. And could you elaborate on those big four? And, you know, I'm obviously talking about insurance and such. But to me, after I read that, I'm like, this is the key to making resilience and adaptation relevant to the rest of the world. Could you just elaborate on that? Sure. We went through a number of different ideas that are out there for finding money to pay for adaptation. And of course, this will be a major challenge, uh, including a challenge that we did not cover in this book was the cost benefit analysis. But we talked about taxing. That is a more typical approach to getting monies from citizens to pay for projects. Taxing is not a very popular approach simply because there a lot of folks don't want uh, additional taxes. Another way to do this is to issue bonds, and we've seen that in Miami with their forever bonds. Those proceeds will then be used to, for example, in, in Miami, pay for more pumps, raising roads, that kind of thing. Uh, Cities will go into debt to try to improve their resilience. We've also seen ways that you could have those that benefit the most. Say there's a seawall and a bunch of companies are located just behind that seawall, that they would pay a higher share for the benefits of that seawall than someone who's far further inland and actually doesn't have as much concern whether there is a seawall or not. Another way to go about this is we hear lots of talk about the need for a price on carbon. So if there were a price, either in a carbon dividend, carbon tax, some other means of raising money, that you would actually take those carbon taxes, those carbon proceeds from the reduction of carbon to pay for adaptation. We know that we're going to need to adapt even if we get to zero carbon, so that seems an appropriate use of those funds. And then there have been a number of efforts to issue green bonds to get uh, investors excited about the nature of uh, this investment because it's it's about doing good. Green bonds have initiated with a, just a single idea from a banker and have grown to be an enormous industry, there is some concern about green bond washing, that means, or greenwashing, that 
bonds that would have been issued, which were more pedestrian, more ordinary, get dressed up as green bonds, and then they attract more investors. And then we have other ways that countries like Mexico have created disaster funds. Canada is also, this is not in the book, uh, looking at creating a disaster fund to fund their projects. So it's ways of helping nations develop a, a pot of money that then they can tap into after a disaster or in some cases pre-disaster to pay for these big things. There are cat bonds. Those are bonds that are issued after a catastrophe. Excuse me, bonds that are issued in advance of a catastrophe, and they can have a parametric trigger that, for example, if sea levels rise to a certain amount, then the bond is paid immediately. So there's a whole host of ideas that are out there, and they're being implemented in various ways and have achieved varying levels of infiltration into the markets. The bottom line is we are going to need to find new sources of raising revenues in order to pay for some of these projects, which can be quite costly when you're talking about a seawall or raising roads or raising piers in ports. You're working in this in the domestic side of things, but you also get exposed to the international side of things. In regards to what you just talked about, are we learning anything from the international, you know, other countries in Europe? Are they doing things better that we could be doing or is everyone, is it real still early days? I think it is still early days, but certainly the European Union is working hard on pricing carbon and finding uh, new ways to finance also, Canada has emerged as a real leader in this in this space, uh, simply because there is quite a mandate from the Canadian political leadership to do better on climate. So you'll see that they are advancing a resilient building code. Uh, that is something that's quite unique. I just mentioned this disaster fund, uh, and they are about to embark on their own new national flood insurance program. They never had flood insurance before. So we're seeing great ideas emerge across the globe. And one thing that will be important going forward is that we find ways to better share these lessons. A real challenge is that because the nature of climate change is so new, and it involves considering future risks, that is risks of events that have not been experienced in human memory, that we'd be able to share lessons learned, ideas, so that we're not forcing each community on its own to reinvent the wheel and come up with uh, the best approaches. That doesn't really exist yet, and I think that will be an important development for helping all nations be able to quickly jumpstart their resilience efforts. I think people are craving all over the world more information, more examples on adaptation. I, you know, I have from 75 different countries, they, uh, they listen to the podcast, which I'm a bit shocked about. And when I do hear from people overseas, I think they're just fascinated and they want to see what's happening in the U.S. And I know at the federal level, things have kind of stepped back. But at the state and local level, people are just very interested in what's going on. A lot of sort of incubator adaptation work going on. Yes. And it's a very exciting work. It is I believe we're just at the beginning of this journey. Um, we really haven't fully embraced the challenge yet, and I don't think we're quite understanding how very significant it will be to get this done. 
Okay, another part of the the book is you talk about climate science, and then uh, please correct me if I'm wrong on this. It's just one of the sort of recommendations, and I guess criticisms of, of the U.S. system is it's not as centralized as it could be, and I, I'm not sure if I quite have that right. But it's not a focus. I guess it's not strategic enough. No, it's a real challenge in the United States. We have some of the world's best climate science being developed here, but we have not mastered how to deliver that science in a format that's usable to decision makers. We just leave it up to the decision makers to wade through reams of data, different toolkits, different assemblages of information, and try to figure out the answer. I'll never forget meeting the mayor of a small town in Alabama, and she said, I'm a small town mayor. I have a part-time staff. How am I supposed to figure out what my sea level rise risks are, what my particular challenges are going forward with climate change? And I thought that was a very fair statement. It was almost impossible for her to figure out how to navigate the federal government's treasure trove of data to get to reasonable answers for a way forward for her and her town. It's partly what I mean, too, is just the basic climate science. And I think what we've seen in the last few years is that the science isn't being used, or I guess there's even a, a sort of an attack on the generation of the science at the federal level. I'm not sure if you've been hearing much on that. But this notion of centralized science, we don't do it so well here in the U.S. I wonder the fact that it is a little bit disorganized in the sense that the universities produce a lot. Then you have some of the federal agencies that do it. But in some, in some ways, that actually protected overall the integrity of science being created. Well, science is evolves over time and certainly our understanding improves over time. But one of the important roles I think the federal government has is to produce some of the cutting edge science. And that could be in its own agencies. We have fabulous scientists that are on the federal government payroll, but also through uh, supplementing research budgets in universities. The challenge is to take that science and apply it to the questions that people who live in communities have about what they need to do. And that is still a delta, a gap for the U.S. government. I think it's still a gap, frankly, in most communities. I don't think that there is a uh, single one-size-fits-all that is the agreed science, and then beyond that, that the communities agree what they should do with the science. One of the great examples of this or challenges that I see is in the San Francisco Bay, where they have a 100 communities around that bay, but they are still struggling to come to an agreement among themselves as to what level of sea level rise to plan for. And of course, that has significant ramifications that because if one community makes one choice, it could mean that another community receives the water that is blocked by a seawall or something else. So it is hard, even with good science, to come to decisions. But certainly we need to make it understandable to all those who need to use this information. Yeah, I agree. I was interviewing, I don't know if you know her, she's a landscape architect, Christina Hill out of San Francisco. And I asked, you know, I think the number she uses is something like nine feet of sea level rise, really sort of at that extreme end, even though you're seeing a lot of recommendations, I guess, with other data being produced, three, four, five feet. So it is, it's all over the map of people using it to sort of make plans. It's 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 not it's not healthy. Not to say I'm uh, criticizing what she's doing, but there's just these extreme, what people are doing. 
Yes, well, I remember being a moderator on a panel talking about the San Francisco Bay, and we had the Army Corps of Engineers, somebody from the ballpark that sits right on the bay, as well as a few other representatives of communities on the bay. And we asked them each, what level of sea level rise are you planning for? And the Army Corps of Engineers, I think, said nine feet. And then somebody else said two feet. And then somebody else said a foot. So you've got this crazy array of different approaches, which we actually asked them, do you think this is going to work in the end? And uh, of course, there was kind of silence. There was no real answer whether you could knit together all of that and get to a plan that would keep this communities as safe as possible in San Francisco Bay. So you had a chapter on human behavior, or there was a lot of talk on human behavior, and there's this concept of loss aversion, which I thought was really important as we kind of move ahead with adaptation. What What is loss aversion? Well, loss aversion is the tendency to overvalue loss in relation to gain. So most people are more concerned about losing a dollar than gaining a dollar. And I think um, most vividly this plays out in terms of people relocating from the coast, even though they know that sea level rise is occurring, their houses are getting soggy, they've invested so much in these houses, they're very reluctant to move further inland or or sail, sell them. There's also an emotional attachment to the homes and other things at play. But you just see that there's this tremendous aversion to having anything that causes them to lose that home. It becomes difficult when you're facing a challenge like climate change that does involve trade-offs and will involve losses to help people understand how it could make rational economic sense for them to make a different choice. One of the other big cognitive impediments to understanding climate risk is our availability bias. And that is that we tend to judge risk based on what we've experienced in the past or a friend has experienced. We really, pretty much any time you read about a big climate event, what you hear is that this is the biggest thing we've ever seen. We've never seen a flood like this or a wildfire. Well, that is the nature of climate change. They're going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, ever bigger, more destructive events. But because we have this availability bias, we tend to assume that the last big event we saw was the biggest event we'll ever see. And we base our judgments about what we need to do to prepare for such risks based on the past. And that didn't wasn't such a bad assumption before climate change. All of our building decisions and choices are based on historical risk. But now that historical risk is no longer an accurate portrayal of what we could face. And getting over that availability bias of imagining something that you've never seen or experienced and preparing for it is really hard. You know, in the 9-11 Commission, one of the things they identified for the reason why the United States was caught unawares and was surprised by the terrorist attacks was what the commission called a failure of imagination. And that was that we'd never seen anything like what the terrorists were able to perpetrate. And climate change is somewhat similar in that. We've never seen these things before. So we're asking people to prepare for something that's 
unfamiliar and not uh, part of their availability bias. Uh, so it's just a harder sell for them to understand why it's important to get ready. Well, I, I understand everything's political, but this whole notion of loss aversion, I think we rely too much on the individual making decisions and how are we going to create programs that appeal to the individual. I just did an episode on managed retreat with uh, A.R. Siders at the University of Delaware. Have you crossed paths with A.R. Siders? Yes, she and I worked together when I was at the Hoover Institution. She did some work with me, uh, and so I'm very familiar with her work. Okay, well, yeah, she's just a, a lead on this issue, and so it was a fantastic conversation, but this whole notion of these buyout programs, and there's a psychology around it, but I mean, you've been at the highest levels of the U.S. government. At some point, this can't be voluntary. I mean, don't you think, I mean, it, the, the notion of moving, I guess, larger and larger numbers of people away from the coast have you even within the think tanks that you've worked at, have have there been scenarios of government programs that are just like, OK, it's eminent domain or some other big ways to really get people to move in mass? Well, there are a couple of ways that this has unfolded in the past, and we've got some whole communities being moved by the federal government. Uh, New talk in Alaska, where. The village there is just sliding into the sea. It has about 350 residents. The federal government has given $15 million for that move. They need a lot more money to successfully move it, as well as the Ile Jean de Charles in Louisiana, where we have about 80 um, members of a state tribe being moved at federal government expense en masse. Almost all of them have agreed. I'm not completely up to date where they are, but a land has been identified uh, and they would move to that land. But as you pointed out, there is the eminent domain. There's a takings clause where governments can't just take your land. So it's a quite a decision for governments to decide to take property by eminent domain. And that's why I think we've seen mostly voluntary buyout programs. I anticipate as we go forward, eventually what the government will get to is that it will give no new money to areas at risk. So you won't see money uh, as you is occurring now, invested in, for example, floodplains for new development. So I think that's one way the government will signal heavily that it does not want to support in the future any more uh, investments in these high-risk areas. The federal government has done this already in its Coastal Barriers Act, where these fragile barrier islands that occur on the Atlantic seaboard and the government in, I believe it was the 1980s, decided they just weren't going to give any money for new development in those areas and have basically said, if, if you want to own your home there and build a home there, uh, you're on your own. Uh, we're not going to help you. So I think that is really probably where we'll get to for many of these homes going forward. All right. Pivoting a little bit here is that you briefly discussed the Green New Deal, and it, it certainly got a lot of attention. People are just thinking about it, and I guess that's a good thing. How do you think it covers the issue of adaptation resilience? Well, they do give a call out for resilience, which I think is important. So I was very pleased to see that. In my opinion, it could have been larger because I think uh, in the immediate future, that is what individuals and communities will be struggling with. You know, we're just seeing it uh, more and more, uh, for example, in Florida, a whole community that with these king tides has now been underwater 
I think over 80 days, I mean, they've just had water stagnant on their streets. Uh, had, that had never happened before for such a long period of time. In Norfolk, we're seeing Sunday day flooding in Virginia. And then we're seeing these recurring wildfires that are very challenging. So we're just at the front end of this. But as these impacts continue to emerge, there'll be growing pressure on the government to do something to help communities be more resilient, to adapt. And I think the Green New Deal's emphasis on resilience will be even of greater importance. Okay, so my listeners would be disappointed if I didn't bring this up and someone's already brought it up. And you had a footnote at the beginning of your book, maybe you know what I'm talking about here, is that you acknowledge that you're going to use the term resilience over the word adaptation. And you say that right at the beginning. Okay, (laughs) I'd spend a lot of time on this podcast just having that battle here, and I'm always emphasizing adaptation. Why did you make that decision for the book? You know, the choice to use resilience really reflected the vocabulary that uh, I was familiar with in the federal government, and that's also the vocabulary used in many communities. Resilience has turned out to be a safe word. I just heard that again the other day. It's the safe word. Adaptation was viewed as too closely tied to climate change. Of course, when I talk about resilience, I'm talking about it in relation to climate change. But many communities have glommed on to the word resilience because they think it helps them achieve their goals. So when I was in the federal government, resilience was quickly eclipsing the word adaptation, although you see internationally the word adaptation used uh, much more widely than resilience. I will say that resilience is a broader word, in my opinion, than adaptation. Resilience really encompasses a broader scope of strategies to deal with climate, but it was really just reflective of Leo's and my experience in the federal government where resilience grew to dominate the discussion. That's very interesting because I always sort of describe adaptation as sort of the umbrella word and resilience is a tactic under adaptation and you just totally flip that. And I, and I completely get the whole notion you were in government that the government is there in the business of building resilient communities and you're not going to let things go. And obviously, and, and you even argued in the book, too, is this managed retreat. You're not building resilient community along those coastal areas or you're in a flood prone area. Are you going to tell a local community, are you going to make this these homes resilient against flood? You probably want to encourage them to leave. And so you're adapting. To, and I'm not sure to lecture you, but there's sort of this battle, this friction. And I think resilience, even though I use it all the time, there's this notion that we can climate proof everything. And I and I worry that sort of giving false assurance to everyone that you can make every community resilient to what's going to come down the pipeline. Well, I guess I just I would disagree that resilience doesn't include managed retreat. I think resilience means that you adapt and recover. And if recovering includes leaving, that's recovering. I, you know, I am not one who has spent a lot of time trying to define these words. In fact, when I was in the government, we looked at it. And uh, one of the first things I thought was, well, we should come up with a definition for resilience. But once we started researching it, we realized there were multiple definitions of resilience and we could spend our entire time in Obama administration trying to define the term. Maybe wouldn't even be successful. Congress has just told FEMA to come up with one definition of resilience. So that'll put the end to to (laughs) struggle to define resilience. And then we will have to figure out the struggle to mesh resilience and adaptation. 
it's a semantic thing, but I, I do think there's some messages you, you send out there on the notion of what real resilience is. And so, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll revisit this in three years. I'd be, I'm looking forward to that definition and <laughs> we, we can argue over those right. little things. So it's been, I think it's been three years since you were at the National Security Council. Have you learned anything in the past three years? And obviously this is in hindsight that would have changed some of the things that you focused on at NSC probably come a long way in three years. Well, I think what we did was appropriate. We focused on a number of perils. Uh, we developed the federal flood risk management standard. If I had to say anything about that, it is a building code essentially for flood for the national, for anyone who wants to use federal money to build in or near a floodplain. President Trump, 10 days before Harvey hit Houston, revoked that building standard. So I would just say I wish we'd gotten that done a little earlier so it would have been more embedded in the federal government because I do think it's important. And in fact, members of his administration have recognized that it is a loss to the government to have that not be in place just because it increases the likelihood of flood loss. We also did a wildfire standard. We did the screening of our investments overseas. Those two executive orders are still in place. And the only other regret I have, I suppose, is also our, the executive order on national security and climate change. We didn't get that done till the very end of the Obama administration. Again, I wish we had gotten it to it earlier because that made it vulnerable to, I think, being repealed by President Trump. Simply, it had not gained sufficient traction to prove its worth. In the subsequent years, it's just been revealed that the national security risks have grown, are continuing to grow. We had a report from the U.S. Army this just a few months ago outlining how serious the national security risks are to the nation from climate change. So I regret that that's not in place because I think it's would help us better understand and plan for the risks of migration, the threats to our installations, our military installations, and a whole host of other challenges that are ahead as climate change begins to show greater and greater evidence that it's occurring and having far greater impacts. And I think people are discovering the news in the last couple of weeks that within the National Security Council, there are political appointees and then there are career civil servants. Do you have any sort of insight or not? Are the civil servants still working on the issue of resilience? Are you hearing any traction whatsoever on these issues? I think it depends on the agencies. And certainly sometimes the vocabulary does not include climate, but they are actively working on finding ways to reduce hazards, including climate change. The words climate change uh, do not appear in our national security strategy and the uh, FEMA strategy, and uh, that's unfortunate, but I do believe that there are many within the federal government who continue to worry about and think about climate change. That includes in our science agencies, as well as other agencies that are tasked with keeping the United States safe. Get your thoughts on you know the adaptation universe and being an adaptation professional. You are well known in adaptation circles. You're you're a hero of mine. I appreciate what you do out there. What are your thoughts on the current state of adaptation? And that's a very loaded question. I'll, I'll have some more, but just in general, how, how do you think it is as this emerging subject? Well, I think adaptation suffers from two things that make it extremely difficult. 
First, almost all adaptation resilience decisions are local decisions. So rightfully so, because they concern the communities at hand and they need to be in charge of deciding what's most important relevant to them. And they also have the best knowledge of their communities and uh, the geography, the topography, everything. So it's a but it's very local. So that means that the federal government has to be in a support mode of trying to provide the information, the necessary funding for different locations to make the best choices for themselves. The other challenge is that there has been a feeling among those who work on climate change that to talk about adaptation or resilience is signaling that somehow we can adapt our way out of climate change. I disagree with that. I don't think anyone who works on resilience or adaptation would say that we do not need to cut our emissions, and that's probably That is the primary way to achieve adaptation because it will spare us from the very worst impacts of climate change. With that said, we're going to have plenty of bad impacts of climate change, and we need to be resilient to those or adapt to those, prepare for those in order to maintain our public health, our national security, and our economic strength. So we now are at a point that we need to do both. And because it's so localized and because there is in some quarters some concern about even talking about the subject, it makes it difficult to accomplish. I'm sure you're familiar. The Global Commission on Adaptation, it's a relatively new group, and they just recently launched a, a report. Are you involved with that work at all? Are you are you part of that? Uh, yes, I was involved with some of the planning sessions or the uh, review sessions for the infrastructure portion of the report, and I did review the, the report, the infrastructure sections of the report. Okay, so you can correct me here, and I'm sure you're running much different circles. I've asked around a bit, and I followed it. I watched the launch and such, but, I mean, I'll ask career adaptation people, have they even heard of the commission, or did they hear the report? And pretty much just blank stares. And so is it purposely trying to be more international, or is it just a communication issue, or am I just completely wrong in my assessment of (laughs) people's awareness of it? Because it seems like a really big deal. It seems like a, a nice development. I agree. It didn't have the splash that I think uh, we all hoped it would have. But again, that may reflect what I believe is holding back adaptation discussions. It is such a localized topic. It requires a great deal of money. And there are some that are concerned it overshadows discussion of cutting emissions. With that said, the heads of the Global Adaptation Commission, including Ban Ki-moon of the UN, as well as Bill Gates, brought tremendous cachet to the endeavor, and they were well-funded and had numerous meetings uh, around the globe to get to the report. It's a little early to judge how the report did. They set for themselves, I believe it's 18 months for implementation. So I think we need to wait and see how they do in terms of getting their ideas out and having on-the-ground action as a result of the report. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not criticizing any of the, the quality of the content of the material. I think it's more of just the, the communication arm of it. I just think you need to be a bit more ambitious. I mean, yeah, Bill Gates, these are huge names. And I had dinner with some folks in Florida, and these were people that were in the climate field, professors and someone in charge of an institute. And I just asked, had they even heard of the commission? And they had not. And I thought, that's just crazy. And it's a bit on their part. Maybe they need to get outside their circles. But 
it's I think we need that sort of development, these these commissions, and it, it creates awareness around the whole issue. And I'm just I, in any way that you're involved, it's just I think I, I guess be more creative on on the communication side because it's it's so important. I thoroughly agree. And I wish it had had a bigger splash. I was very hopeful that it would capture the attention of people across the globe. And I share with you the concern that it hasn't yet. My listeners will be very interested in this is where do you get your climate and adaptation information? You're obviously going to these meetings and such, and you're always being exposed. But do you do you have newsletters or listservs or journals or anything? How do you kind of keep up with things? And, and do you listen to podcasts for your for information? I am an omnivore when it comes to uh, climate information. I am subscribed to numerous listservs. I listen to anything anyone sends to me. I try to stay uh, as up to date as I possibly can. I view that as part of my job. And I devote, I would say, at least a couple of hours a day simply to reading and consuming information. Now that for me, that is a, I'm passionate about the subject, so that is not work. That is just, I love to learn as as challenging and as distressing as the topic of climate change is. I find the study of it absolutely 100% interesting. It fully engages me in a way that no other topic has. As you know, I've been a judge, a prosecutor. I was at the Department of Homeland Security, but nothing in my experience matches the intellectual interest and creativity that climate change requires of each of us to even begin to think about uh, what would be the right solutions. It is, of course, also uh, such an important issue in terms of everyone, the planet. So I am constantly looking for new sources of information, and I am really regularly double-checking my level of knowledge. Uh, I try to make sure that I'm reasonably cognizant of all the new developments. With that said, the amount of information coming out in the last two years has gone from what felt more like a trickle to really the fire hose now, uh, and it soon may be a river of information. I just think that the focus and attention on this issue, very welcome, has been enormous in recent years. And that's the science has been there. There's been a lot of production. There is even more. But now it's the analysis, it's the policy ideas, and I'm very excited about that because I think we need everyone in on this and everyone bringing whatever they can to make sure that we are getting traction for the most powerful ideas, the most effective ideas, and moving forward. Community is starting to organize, and there are professional associations. There's a biannual adaptation conference, National Adaptation Forum. Uh, I, I don't think I saw you at the National Adaptation Forum, but are you involved with those groups? Or is that something you're, you're part of? Well, I'm not involved with the National Adaptation Forum, but I've certainly been involved with groups that are trying to work towards education of adaptation professionals. Dan Krieger, there's the Maryland Leadership Institute. Uh, I serve on their advisory council there. I just was on the phone call today with the Global Consortium on Health and Climate Change, which involves deans of public health schools, medical colleges, medical schools, as well as nursing schools, trying to improve education for health professionals. So I am involved in many different groups trying to make sure that we are 
not being insular in our approach as to who needs to have this knowledge and who needs to be able to act on it. Hold you up as, as you'd mentioned that I have a lot of people contact me that are interested in becoming adaptation professionals and they're sort of mid-career people too. And so you're the perfect example. I wouldn't say that you can get to the level of the National Security Council, but the fact that you started off as a, a lawyer prosecutor and now you're just one of the leads in the adaptation space, I get that a lot. People are very enthusiastic about trying to get in. They ask me, how can you do it? And there's no, I think everyone has their own sort of story, but you, you have your own, I think, very interesting story how you got there at the highest levels. Well, mine was really a story of happenstance. I was asked to take on the, a project to look at adaptation for the Department of Homeland Security. I had just arrived there, and frankly, as I remember it, no one wanted to take on this assignment that came out of a executive order from President Obama. And the assignment was to determine what adaptation efforts the department, in my case, Department of Homeland Security, should take on in 2009. So I didn't know hardly anything other than what I'd read in the paper about climate change. And I was given this assignment because, frankly, I think it was viewed as not a career enhancer at that time. It was more of a career buster to be involved in climate change. But we assembled a task force across DHS, uh, really got some of the great scientists that are in the federal government to come help us. We copied work that the Navy had done with its Navy task force climate change. And we asked ourselves a pretty simple question in 2009, does a huge sprawling security agency of the Department of Homeland Security need to worry about climate change uh, in terms of adaptation. And we concluded we needed to care deeply. It was obvious to everyone on that task force that this had ramifications for all of the missions that DHS has, which includes its anti-terrorism, but also its emergency management with FEMA, its Coast Guard presence in the Arctic, its general responsibility for homeland security. We knew that this was important for DHS to get right. And that's how I started on, embarked on this. And then, as I've said, I just found it so intellectually compelling that I have stayed with it ever since. So I have a lot of university level listeners, a lot of college students who, who reach out to me too. Is that, what can you say to them? I, I guess what I'm trying to get here is like any sort of pep talk. This is an emerging field. It's actually an exciting time. And a lot of them want to kind of get into this field and make a difference. Any sort of words of wisdom or words of encouragement? Well, I, first of all, the encouragement, I believe this will be the full employment act. I think that there will be <laughs> jobs to be had and that will be dealing with climate impacts and also ways to cut our emissions and reduce our emissions. As to what they should do, I think that it has changed in the decade that I have been involved. One of the advantages that college students have today is there's far more uh, information available and far more classes that cover this topic. So I would invest part of their time in college, university, in finding out more and taking classes so that they are better informed. One of the challenges I see with climate change with people who haven't had formal education is that it's nuanced. It's not black and white in all instances about what the right thing to do is. And so to the extent you can be better informed on questions that will come up, you'll be a lot easier to 
find ways to be useful. And once you prove yourself useful, jobs will follow. So I would just encourage them to take advantage of the offerings that they have at hand. Uh, and then if they are interested to pursue internships and other opportunities to get their feet in the door, you will make your luck from there. But it's always easier if you're a little bit better prepared when you launch. Is the Council on Foreign Relations, are there internships, are there positions that young professionals or university students can get involved in? There are occasionally internships and there are also research uh, associate positions where you can come and after you graduate, perform research for the fellows here at the council. I think other think tanks have similar positions. One of the things I will say is that the traditional think tanks have been a little slower to embrace the climate change issue. Most of the jobs, at least in terms of think tanks, have gone to what I call the green or the environmental think tanks that have more traditionally operated in this space. But now as climate impacts are becoming more obvious and more expensive and more damaging, you're seeing the traditional think tanks also beef up their programs in climate change. So in the coming years, I do believe there'll be ever greater numbers of people focused on these issues looking for policy solutions and students will have an opportunity in internships, research positions, and then as fellows to contribute to that discussion. Going on from the Cato Institute, uh, talking about adaptation, which I thought was interesting. I mean, <laughs> basically, it was like buy more air conditioners, which wasn't, I think, that useful. But it was good that they came on and sort of and they're even thinking about it. Right. Where can they get your book? I'm assuming Amazon. But what, what's a good spot to purchase the book? Amazon is a wonderful place to purchase it. So is the Oxford University Press website. Amazon, they do have a cheaper price for Kindle, which is, uh, I think, probably good for the environment. Um, but it is available in both of those spots. I also saw it, by the way, on Target's website. So it's <laughs> right. available there as well. I, I'll have links in my show notes, and I've already heard from a couple of people that they bought the book. Okay, last question I asked everyone. I asked you this before. I'll be curious if you have a different answer. You probably will. But if you could recommend any guest to come on to this podcast, who would it be? Well, I have to recommend my co-author, Leo Martinez. <laughs> I mean, he and I shared the writing of every single word in that book. We reviewed it together and wrote it together. But he brings a unique perspective uh, as an economist. And he previously was at USAID in their policy shop. So he brings a, a wonderful international perspective to the world of climate adaptation. Well, Alice, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to have you on again, and congratulations on the book. It's an important book, and I hope people go out and buy it and learn from it. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. What a pleasure to rejoin you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Judge Hill for coming back to the pod. I feel like old friends now with Alice, which is just awesome. I've been following her career for a while now. There are numerous resources out there on how to get started in adaptation, but very few readable reports or books that provide a useful framework that puts it all together and connects it across sectors now getting into the adaptation space. Her book does that. Links to her book are in my show notes. What a great book to use in your book club, especially at work if you do adaptation. Just saying. 
Okay, some final housekeeping. If you or your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issues. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. I'm about to go up to Massachusetts and we're collaborating on a three-part series on some coastal adaptation work going on up there. So maybe there's some stories that you'd like to tell. As I mentioned earlier, I'm doing something new with the streaming TV at Simpatico Studios. I'm sure many of you have questions about this, but check out the link in my show notes on how to learn more. Definitely sign up if you feel you have some adaptation work you want to share on a brand new streaming platform. Okay, don't forget to check out the Podcast in the Classrooms initiative we're doing. I have heard from many professors using AmericaDapps in their classrooms. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for eight of my episodes. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadaps.org. Yes, it's a personal mission to get more professors and teachers and professionals using podcasts in the classrooms. Your students will thank you for it and it'll complement the coursework really well. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and I really love doing it. I've been doing some keynote presentations. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences adaptation because this is what I've been doing for a long time. I will talk about adaptation ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can reach me at americadaps.org. Okay, your donation makes a huge difference. You are providing financial support to further communicating what will be the defining issue of this and future generations adapting to climate change. And it's the end of the year. You're trying to figure out who you can donate to. Donate to smaller nonprofits, you know, and if you don't donate to America Adapts, maybe there's another small nonprofit that could use your money. You can donate a very simple website that is in my show notes. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join. I'll prove you right away. And maybe that's an opportunity if you have some questions about the Simpatico Studios. So go check that out. Okay. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Go on, say hi. I hear from people from all over the world, and it's so awesome just hearing who my listeners are and the stories of what they're doing. It is the highlight of my week. I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. <laughs>